We are continuing our Lenten series through the Passion narrative in the book of Mark. Today's reading is from Mark 14, starting in verse 12. And just by way of reminder, last week, after Jesus was anointed, Judas immediately went to the religious authority to betray Jesus. So that's, contextually, that's known by Judas, and we'll see by Jesus himself, too. On the first day of the Passover, on, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, Where's my guest room? that I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, uh, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him to not have been born. While they're eating, Jesus took the bread, and then he gave, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if I fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This is the word of the Lord. So Mark is orienting us in time. This is the Passover festival, and more specifically, it's the day of preparation, the day that the lamb is prepared to be served. So this is a very busy time in Jerusalem. You have, by some estimates, as many as one million pilgrims coming into town to take part of the Jewish festival. It is expected that you come to Jerusalem. In fact, on that weekend, Jerusalem expands its boundaries to accommodate more people who want to come and celebrate the Passover into there. And part of why it's so important is you needed the high priest to bless your lamb. If you're going to eat a lamb, it had to be unblemished, no broken bones. There's all these protocols given to the people of God through Moses. So they're going into the temple where there's this whole system where the lambs would be inspected and then blessed and then slaughtered so they could go back and be prepared for Passover. It's also a time where things are, we'll just say they're a little tense. You're Rome, 
You've got these troublesome people you're occupying, and they have this story they celebrate every year of God delivering and rescuing them out of slavery. It doesn't take a genius to think, this might be a hard time. This might be a time when people get in their head revolt. Um, Part of why Pilate was in town and part of why they were scheduled crucifixions. We don't know who's going to get crucified, but we're going to crucify someone that weekend to remind people who's in charge. Have your festival, but don't let that actually influence your political engagement here. Don't let it get in your head that this is literally true and God wants to literally deliver you. And just to remind you who's in charge here, we're going to perform some crucifixions. So it is busy. It is tense. There are lambs being dragged in. Little you know, parents say to one another, this is why we don't give the lamb a name. You know, it's really upsetting for the children. And they're going in one way. The Roman centurions on horses are going the other way, looking around, tapping their swords, making eye contact, saying, don't forget who's in charge here. It is ordered chaos. It's like Disneyland on a really busy day where there's lines and you're, uh, I I don't know, I, I worked at Disneyland for a few years and part of training is, this is the happiest place on earth. They told me on my mandatory eight and a half hour day of training that Xerox, their product is copy machines. IBM, which some of you may have heard of, um, no longer does what they did back then as an example of producing computers. And they said, our product is happiness. And I remember working many shifts in the evening, looking around and saying, there's not a lot of happy people here because they're tired, they're worn out, they're hungry, their mind is in, how do we get our car to the parking lot? How do we get at a reasonable time? There's, we're just not our best when we're tired, hungry, and stressed. And, and here come Jesus with his disciples. And I think it's safe to assume the disciples are tired, they're hungry, and they're stressed. This is a really big moment. What's the plan, Jesus? Let us in on the plan. We're here. We've come a long ways. We don't know. We, we don't have a lamb. We don't have a room. It's chaos here. And I don't know if they think Jesus is naive. Like, did you make like a reservation somewhere? Do we have like, do you want to clue us in a little bit? I don't know if you're like me, but there's a lot of bad behavior on my part that I attribute to low blood sugar. I say, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. And instead of saying that was mean and, and, and unkind, I say, I was tired and, and hungry. It's like, oh, okay, so you're a child. So th- there's, there's a little bit uh, of a moment in here um, where you just have to imagine things are tense in the end. There's, it's easier to trust God's plan when you know what the plan is. It's, it's, you know, sometimes it's easier to trust God's plan than to trust God. And I think there's something in here about with Jesus saying, um, I'm going to give you very meager details about the plan because it's more important that you trust me. And so they finally are saying we need to make preparations. There's always, I always kind of read into what the disciples say, like, can you tell us the plan? It's not because I don't trust you or lack faith, or it's not because I'm grouchy. It's just, we just want to help you. You know, we just want to help prepare the room. Let, let us help you, Jesus, you know, kind of, kind of thing. And, and uh, so they go into there, and, and what Jesus says is, look for a man carrying a jug of water and follow him. And they're like, yeah, of course. Yeah, we'll just go find a guy carrying a jar of water when there's literally 850,000 people in time. I, I, I think there's a little, little bit of a clue here. One of, the, one of the 
insights from one of the commentaries I read this week said that men don't normally carry water. That's considered a woman's task. So maybe there's something in here of, well, they wouldn't be that easy to identify because usually that's something that they let the women do, which is, um, we'll just say odd. And perhaps there's something special about the kind of guy that would be willing to carry water is also the kind of guy that would set up a guest room for Jesus. I don't know. That's not in the text. I just thought it was interesting. So they identify this man. They follow him. It, it has the feel of like uh, a CIA agent. You know, they're sitting on the park bench and they're kind of pretending like they're reading the newspaper. Like, where are we going to be tonight? Look for the guy carrying water. Follow him to the destination and then go in there and say this coded phrase. Okay, so the phrase is, where is the room you prepared for us? That is correct. And then they leave separate ways. It has a very cloak and dagger style to it. And, and, and so remember, the disciples are worried about the preparations. Where's the lamb? We don't have a lamb. Where are we going to stay? It's, we're told by Mark, this is the time when people are bringing the lambs in there. So part of their concern is, Jesus, where is the lamb? And what Jesus takes is the details he doesn't give them any of the details, and he focuses them on a place prepared for them. That in there, don't worry about the lamb, you're going to understand later, I'm the lamb that was slain. That everything, the Passover, points towards what's about to happen. He's tried to tell them some version of that, they haven't been able to hear him. So what he's saying is, this is what you need to know about the plan. I've prepared a place for us. It's spacious, it's bigger than you think, and it's set apart specifically for us. So all these, where the details that they want? How is this going to be accomplished? He focuses them on a place that he has already prepared for them. I sometimes do something what I call a, an audit to my prayer life. I pray, but then part of my consciousness is being mindful of what I'm praying. And I was... Um, listening to a, a Mike Birbiglia talk that Jeff Walnifer and I got to see live. It's about learning to come to terms with uh, his health. And he's, he has this line about he had this medical scare and he goes to the doctor and he starts telling the doctor what he thinks it might be because he says, I've learned that doctors love diagnosis as a collaboration where we work together as peers and equals. And I just heard that and I was thinking, you know, a lot of my prayers seem to be a little collaborative where I suggest to God ways, like I'm, you know, uh, about, you know, I am anxious about finances and an unexpected windfall would sure be wonderful, you know, or uh, focusing on schools with the children and God, you know, this door opening over here would, would be wonderful. To the big stuff, like the deep burden I have over this being an election year and, and the fragmentation in our country or Israel and Palestine and the killing that's going on there. And I think to myself, Man, I have some wonderful suggestions of how this could close. And what Jesus takes in all that anxiety, the, the little mundane things, like how we're going to pay a bill, to the big, unsettled lack of peace in our world. And what Jesus does in this place is two things. One is something completely unexpected, a guy carrying water, God answering their requests in ways that they never would have guessed or expected, and only God can do. And two that he focuses them off of the details to manage and onto a place that's prepared for them. And I think that's significant as we head into this passage. When, when, in, when John gives us the account of, of some, some more direct teaching Jesus gives in that moment, is he tells his disciples, I'm going somewhere, 
but I prepare a place for you. And his disciples say, central to finding you is knowing where you're going. That's kind of a, I'm going to go and, and you can find me. And they say, can you give us a city or a direction to head? And, and he's like, you'll know the way. And, and, and then finally he, he says to them, I am the way. And in this little picture of, of a mundane detail of a group of people trying to find lodging in a place to, to have a religious festival together is a larger, bigger truth of how God responds to us, what we need to know and what he tells us, and anchoring us on what's next, the next step to take, and I've prepared a place for you. Don't worry about it. And that's true in the ultimate sense of God has a place for you. This, this Last Supper together, he directs it at the end, the next time we have this meeting, we'll be in the kingdom of God together. So this little microcosm, this little story, is part of a much larger story of the anxieties we get swept up in, the concerns and the details and, and our anxiety that's produced from that, and Jesus emphasizing to them, here's what's next, and don't worry, there is a place for you. That's why, as a church, focusing on Jesus, following Jesus, all the unexpected twists and turns, the ways that faith is preparation, but also an, an expectation of being surprised. I think that was our first series of the year about waiting. Really, what we're waiting for is to be surprised by Jesus, waiting for him to act in ways we would never expect. And I, I would bet if I said to you, tell me the moment of your life where you felt the most seen by God, where he was the most present to you, it would be something that was shocking and unexpected. It would be like finding a guy carrying water to his place and then saying, oh, excuse me, before you go inside, the teacher said you have a place for us? Come on in, it's warm, it's ready, and it's set for you. There's allowing ourselves to be surprised, examining our prayer life of all the ways that, I mean, maybe that's, that's, the, maybe that's what prayer is. God, I'm concerned about this. Surprise me. But deep down I know you prepared a place for me. Um, okay, I kind of went off, off, uh, off the reservation here. Let me reorient myself. Okay, so they're sitting around the table. Okay, this is the next part. So they're sitting around the table. And um, go ahead and throw up that slide up there of the table. So here they are. Um, this is uh, Pastor Sean next door. Always pre presents a wonderful slide here. Uh, it's the, in the, in the, in their drop two pictures, the first one is the, the Last Supper picture by Leonardo da Vinci. And so you picture it. They're, they're gathered. There's all this stress, anxiety. They've arrived. It's kind of like when you travel and you finally check into your hotel room and you're, you're out of the, the chaos of arriving at that point. You finally, your shoes are off. You're sitting at the table. All the anxiety is gone. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says to them, someone in this room will betray me. Buzzkill. So everybody, immediately chaos erupts. Leonardo da Vinci uh, captured this moment. This is the moment he's painting here of the Last Supper, is the moment he announces to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And that's why it looks so chaotic. They're pointing inward, pointing outward. Chaos is ensuing. They're blaming each other. They're wondering deep down. And, and what Mark tells us is each one, one by one, said to him, is it me? Does that surprise you that that's the response? I invite you to imagine Jesus himself coming in through this door on the right, coming up to the microphone, 
looking at us. We're all like, it's Jesus. This is a beautiful moment. And he says, one of you will betray me. And it is, the betrayal is going to be so severe that, that it would be better if that person wasn't born. And then he exits stage right. Would you not, would your first thought not be, I hope it's not me? Because that would be mine. My first thought would be, oh no, oh no, what is it? What I do? You know, it's kind of one of those, uh, you know, you know how when like, when you raise your voice, and like, hey, what, you know, I'm home. And then dogs are like, what I do? Like the, the, you know, there's kind of that instant response of all the disciples in the room that I think if we're honest, all of us would have the exact same response. I hope he's not talking about me. I think the indictment in this image and in this passage is deep down, all of us know that it could be me. It could be you. It could have been any one of us. That there's this internalized sense of shame, this intuitive sense that I am capable of profound betrayal. All it would take is a particular set of circumstances. And then I could do something that I regret the, the rest of my life. How well do you know your own heart? How attuned into what motivates and drives you? Do you do things and say, why did I react like that? Why did that response emerge out of my heart? We have like Peter. You know, we have Peter saying, I would never betray you. I would die before I would betray you. And Jesus looks at him and says, friend, before the sun rises, the dawn comes and the rooster crows twice to announce the start of a new day, you will have betrayed me three times. And Peter says, I will die before I did that. He didn't know. Judas seemed to think he was doing what was right. There's a lot of good evidence in piecing together his psychology to say he, he was probably deeply believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He just needed a nudge to get the revolution started. Of course he's the Lord's anointed. Who else could do all this, these miraculous signs? And so his imagination was shaped in worldly political ways. So it's like we need to get Jesus to grab the sword and start the revolution because it's Passover. Everyone's here. We can take Rome right now. We just need... History will be kind to me and understand that Jesus just needed a nudge because he'd gotten a little too into the turn the other cheek thing. Um, and so he didn't understand his own heart too and, and what he was about to do. So you can see in here this, the chaos that erupts of people pointing in there and, and everything. And, and as art historians have looked at this, they've identified Judas. Do you know which one's Judas? Next slide, please. It's easy to think, yeah, he's the guy holding the knife. Now, I don't know who's holding that knife or where that knife is pointed or going. Uh, it is, uh, actually, there's been some art criticism, and uh, I would guess that that's Simon the Zealot, but who knows. Um, no, Judas is the one who spilled the salt. The way he identifies Judas in this painting is knocking over salt. And so there's a lot of the superstition surrounding spilling salt is from this picture. This is how he identifies Judas at the table as the one who spills the salt. And what's interesting to me, and why I love this creative, artistic imagination of Judas and his motivation is, how did Jesus talk about salt? You know, salt losing its saltiness. Um, there's, there's two primary things. One is salt provides and enhances flavor. Um, if you didn't know anything about salt and you tasted it, you would say, keep that away from my food, please. But there's something about when it's in... Of, on a vegetable or in meat or in literally everything. Salt's in literally everything. Uh, 
There's a little bit, sometimes a little bit too much salt is not good for the old ticker. But um, the other thing that, um, sorry, I called my heart a ticker. Uh, that, was, that was just part of my role to perpetually uh, embarrass my children. Um, so uh, the, other, the other role salt played in, in ancient world was in a time before re, uh, refrigeration. Salt was used as a preservative. You could, if you, if you properly rub the salt deep in, into meat, a fish, uh, beef, pork, uh, well, they wouldn't have used pork, but you get my, what I'm saying. It could preserve and last a lot longer. Salted meat resists decay. And there's something perhaps in this image that speaks to a decay, a rot, a, a him not embracing the part of the kingdom of God that Jesus likened to salt and choosing to go his own way, his imagination perhaps shaped by empire and, and, and Roman real, rule. But um, others have noted that salt would have been um, expensive, uh, much more than it is now, and spilling it is a lack of hospitality. It's a way of, of not honoring a table by wasting it and knocking it over and, and not being careful. But, um, and that, that's also an interesting angle because what Jesus points to as the sign is, and what Jesus says to them all that the sign is, is linked to hospitality. I will share bread with this person. It's one of my people. It's one of my 12. And it's the bread, the bread broken and shared with Judas that says, that's the sign. It's not something uh, negative. It's the one I kick. It's the one I won't look at because I'm so uh, angry at him and I can't even look at him right now. It's I will offer hospitality to the person that betrays me. I will break bread with them. And what did Jesus just say about the bread he's breaking? It's broken for everyone around the table and for all of us. That there's, I'm, my body is being broken this night that I might show hospitality even to my enemies. And as he says at the very end, all of you will abandon me. All of you will forsake me. It's just a matter of how far each of you will go and how much each of you will come back to me for reconciliation. But it's, um, in fact, that's what I want to conclude with this morning. The secret to becoming more forgiving. There's something, I think, in there as we're looking at Jesus and what he's giving up and surrendering at each stop along the way to the cross. He's surrendering something so that at the end, He's able and willing for the joy set before him to give up even his life. So what is he giving up here? What does it mean to give up? What do you, let me ask you this way. What do you give up to show hospitality to an enemy, to a betrayer? When you do that, when everything inside you says, don't do that, not with him. Don't break bread with him. Don't dip at the table with him. Don't invite him to the table. Don't treat him like, what is that? What do we give up when we begin to forgive? When we forgive, when we begin to surrender. And, and I want to talk about forgiveness not as a point in time, I forgave that person and I'm done. But to acknowledge and recognize that forgiveness is a, a posture. It's a, it's a journey. Um, it, it answers hard questions like, if this person is continuing to do harm, what does it look like to be in a relationship? How can I have a boundary but still have a door to welcome that person back in? By and see, you know, the, the, that's what I once heard was boundaries are not about the walls you build but about the door you insist people come through to be in a relationship with you. So if that's the case, having a door and a pathway to reconciliation, um, how do we become the kinds of people 
that can do that. And there's something in this passage that, as I've sat in it this week, that has really challenged me. Um, it's the first moment. Well, so the story begins with Jesus preparing a place for the disciples. And that is a place where he is showing hospitality to them. So the story begins with Christ preparing a place, Christ giving hospitality. Then in that moment, it in, is interrupted by one of you will betray me. And the first instinct everyone in that room has is, I hope it's not me. So the beginning is recognizing and acknowledging our own capacity to betray and to do harm. But very quickly, that evolves from, oh good, it's not me, to it's Judas, I get to hate him. And all of that anger, that shame, all that, that we despise about ourselves finds the scapegoat, Judas, to say, well, at least I didn't do that. And so a couple things I, that I found particularly helpful for me as I've sat in this passage, that I've recognized so much of the people that I despise, especially those that are um, in groups of people that I find something abhorrent and, and find myself naturally gravitating towards, you know, all that icky stuff inside of us, and, and, and how so much of it originates here and then finds a scapegoat and then becomes this world where there's us and there's them. Uh, um, it's, you know, Solzhenitsyn, he made this famous, I don't think it was his quote originally, but he said the line dividing good and evil runs through every human heart. That the beginning of the story is the line of good and evil is through the heart of every person in that room. That's how Jesus ends this passage. But it begins with Christ preparing a place, Christ inviting to the table, Christ offering his own body for reconciliation, and Christ sharing in that reconciliation with somebody who is an enemy. And, and I think becoming forgiving takes that first moment of recognizing there's evil in me too. That when Jesus says, before you go after specks, look at the log in your own eyes. Start there. Maybe start there. Find mercy there. Find healing there. Find grace there. Because, un well, I mean, it's a cliche, but hurting people hurt people. We hurt people because of the hurt within us. And Christ at the table is reconciling us to himself in a place saying this moment will be unending in all eternity when the next time I share this meal, it'll be with my whole family. That's the joy set before me. So figure your stuff out now because you're family. And this, the place I'm sitting is the table of mercy, love, and hospitality. And it's for people who are learning together to offer that, to see Christ surrendering the rights to revenge and vindication, sharing hospitality meal. For only grace can change a human heart. And trusting in the end that he's gone before us to prepare, prepare a place for us. And that this life is about learning to become the kinds of people that find a home there. So, come to the table. Come to the table prepared for you. For you are welcomed and invited, and it has been set for you. Come to the table that also has been set for your enemy, for Christ has come to bring peace to us. And when you're ready to recognize in me is the capacity to betray and do great evil, so too, as I receive the mercy of Christ, may that be like a spigot, that the mercy flows in, that it might flow out into a world that is, let's just say, mercy is a scarce resource that's desperately needed.
And the way he brings that mercy into the world is through his people who have been reconciled at the table. So come, be reconciled at the table, that you might be a reconciler in the world. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we are challenged by Christ. We identify with the disciples in the ways that all of our anxiety, uh, all of our obsession over the details is, is ground in a lack of trust, Lord. So may we identify with the disciples and hear the words of Jesus. Just look for a guy carrying a bucket. May we relax and trust you. And beyond that, we are also deeply convicted by the question, I hope it's not me. Lord, may we recognize within ourselves. May we come and repent to you, for we know, we already know, you've forgiven us. We already know that Jesus set the table for friends and enemies alike, and that we find it within our hearts both. Heal us. Heal our broken hearts. Heal and deliver us from our shame, that we might be empowered and equipped as a church focusing on you to bring mercy into a world of hostility and division. We ask for the mercy we need to do this. In the name of Christ, amen. Come to the table.